Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPNLP. This week, we spoke to a pioneer in Chicago's dance club scene, chatted with the mastermind behind the cardboard show, and discussed Paul Gauguin's artwork. All this, plus the Trump Diaries and more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 6, 2017. Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with Mike Potius and Betty Heredia about the upcoming cardboard art show at the Co-Prosperity Sphere. Potius spoke about the concept of democracy in art and the 15-year history of the Birdhouse Museum. Heredia spoke about using art to deal with grief. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Hey, this is Radio Free Bridgeport. You're listening to WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. In lieu of a Tom Petty tribute, we'll be opening cold with Mike and Betty. We'll be talking about the cardboard show that's opening up here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere and hopefully talk a little bit about the Autumn Record Show that happened uh, over the weekend. Jamie, how are you today? Doing good, doing good. Of course, Mike was involved with the uh, Autumn Record Show as well. He's the uh, brain, what would we call you, the brain man? I wouldn't call myself the brain man. That's, <laughs> that's really really giving me a lot of latitude. My, <laughs> no my. way, man. But uh, yeah, I was the one uh, kind of uh, came up with, with the uh, idea of having this uh, Swaparama for uh, Lumpen Radio help benefit our nonprofit station that's always, you know, could use a little help. But uh, we started out uh, with a few vendors first time around early, early, earlier this summer. And then uh, the one we just had Sunday was a total success. A lot of the local dealers, buyers, everybody had a pretty terrific time. And uh, I actually made a c- couple bucks for uh, beer. Good job, Mike. Good Thank job. you very much. We also have Betty Heredia in the Hello. house. Betty, who is well known for her Monday drive time show, The Ism Show. Um, she's not lost. She is here because <laughs> she has work in the cardboard show as well, and she's helping to hang the show. Welcome, Betty. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for Betty. having me. Thank you. So Hi. let's talk about the cardboard show, of course, debuts on Friday at 6 o'clock uh, here at the Co Prosperity Sphere. But this is the 15th annual show. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about the history of the cardboard art show and what, what made you, in fact, get into art on cardboard in the first place. Okay. Anyways, uh, back in the day, you go back 20, 30 years, um, cultures such as art and music, um, it wasn't really a popular thing in Bridgeport. We had, you know, baseball, whatever. Uh, Me and my brother put something together. It's not a brick and mortar thing. It's called Birdhouse Museum of Bridgeport. And what we do is uh, we come up with ideas uh, for art shows and uh, artists that we think are terribly important and should be brought forward to the public. We uh, try to uh, set up a podium for them, try to find a a gallery that we could fit them into. And uh, as far as the cardboard show goes, uh, that started in 2002. It was a mail art show where people would mail five by seven pieces of cardboard, send it to our our place uh, on Racine Avenue, and we'd have a weekend show. And this is our 15th year, which is going to be featured at uh, Lumpen Headquarters, the Co-Prosperity Sphere, 3219 South Morgan. It's this Friday. It's a must-see show. Incredible artists, known and unknown, famous and not so famous. And maybe your godchild's art will be there for purchase. <laughs> the art starts at a hefty $1 to $100. Incredible art. As soon as you get here, you could take it off the wall, take it home, save it for your grandma for Christmas. And uh, the show is going to run from about 6 to 10 or 11 o'clock. And it's just a must-see show. If you miss it, you lose out. Uh, there's incredible art that, yep, that needs to be seen. Onward. You have a, a lot of work from Project Onward in here too. Right, right. And, and I uh, partner and volunteer with Project Onward. It's a uh, uh, art studio where we try to help the career of uh, artists with disabilities. We have about 55 artists. You could visit us anytime, uh, Wednesday through Saturday, Bridgeport Art Center, uh, 35th and Racine, the fourth floor. We have uh, 55 incredible artists, um, folk, intuitive, abstract, you name it. Um, yeah, stop by, and uh, I'll be there on Wednesdays, and love to talk to you and tell you about our space and the artists involved. Now, this has been benefiting Project uh, Onward for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, this this entire show really was set up to to showcase that and to benefit them as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the right the last 
the previous three years, we were at we uh, featured the art on cardboard show at Project Onward, and uh, um, uh, art sold pretty much benefited, uh, paid for studio supplies, and uh, also benefited the artist. What's happening here at the Co Prosperity Sphere this year is. All artists in the show uh, benefit. They get a portion of the money, and a portion goes to keep our lumpen radio waves rocking. Mike, you talked about uh, the mail-in shows that you've done in the past. How did you recruit folks, and how how far and wide did the uh, cast come from? Yeah, well, uh, me and my brother, uh, Al, we're a little crazy about art, and uh, we would reach out to art, although I'm more like Fred Flintstone. You know, you guys use computers. I use like marble and a chisel, but uh, we would reach out and uh, talk to folks. And uh, you know, I used to have a way, way back in the day. You're talking 40 years ago. I used to uh, do some uh, record producing and had a small record label. So we we would uh, trade off records for zines, and so we would kind of network that way. It's kind of prehistoric, but uh, that's pretty much how we we were involved with the mail art situation, where we would get get in contact with folks by, uh, what do you call, by the post office, slow mail, government mail, and uh, send out mail, and they'd send us cardboard back. We'd uh, set up our gallery in my uh, brother's apartment, take all the furniture out, put all the stuff on the, on the walls. Um, it would get hot and muggy and crowded, and, and the party would wind up outside, and, and we'd have a great time. Now, the, the other thing about the Cardboard Art Show is, you know, this is a chance for people to see, um, you know, most art galleries, when, when art's displayed in art galleries, it's it's fairly cost prohibitive to, I think, most novice collectors. You know, if you're, you're at a gallery of, I guess, even the size of the, the Copro, it's probably five to $6,000 for a painting. And I, I know one of the things you focused on with the Cardboard Show was trying to get, as you mentioned, some name popular artists to do stuff on cardboard that would be more entry level and more affordable for people so that they could take art home. Because cardboard is obviously a very proletarian medium, if we think about it that mm-hmm. way. And that's, of course, something, you know, Betty, you've, you've widely exhibited and you do all kinds of stuff all the time. Tell us a little bit about what, what you did for the show. And, and I know you do a lot of drawings on paper, but, you know, cardboard stuff is, is kind of, I think it's yeah. a little new for you, right? Um, well, actually, some, some of these pieces I did, some of the pieces are new that I did for the show. And some are um, just pieces I had from back when I worked at Dusty Groove. Um, we would, I went through this whole period of there was so much waste, uh, so much that would get tossed out and, you know, uh, LP jackets without the vinyl and so I was just on this um, hell-bent on trying to use as much as us like found resources and to make it you know beautify it and so a lot some of these pieces that are paintings or acrylic paintings on um, just uh, LP jackets uh, taken apart and then I did some drawings uh, with sharpies on, uh, on on pieces of cardboard that I would use. Um, so it was just it was just perfect. I didn't even know Mike was involved with this show or that was that this was Mike's uh, brainchild. I just saw a poster for, you know, uh, looking for art and oh, yeah. uh, and then I ran into you at Told the, you I'm a non computer guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get out yeah. there like delivering a newspaper. Yeah. Well I know I I always <laughs> like He's the uh, brain man behind a lot of the stuff that yeah. happens yeah. around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, anyway, so the cardboard show works on a couple couple levels. So anyways, you know, cardboard Eat a piece of pizza, finish with it on the back of it, do your art, right. drop it off over here to Co Prosperity Sphere, and you know, show what you can do. Please and don't use food grade products with the food still on it. Please do not drop that off the Co Prosperity Sphere. <laughs> okay, but, but, well, go, but go on. Mike. As long as they scrape, as long as they scrape it off. But <laughs> what I like about the cardboard show, it's not exclusive; it's inclusive. Mm-hmm. So folks have an opportunity to show their art bring their friends over and see what it's like to actually, you know, show your art before an audience and get some feedback and see what's going on. And also, it's a democracy of art because you go to most galleries, it's exclusive. Folks never get a chance right. to show their art. So I call what I do a democracy of art where we let the proletariat show their art and these snooty art types can <laughs> go wherever they go but over here it's fun and it's for the people and it's a blast 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, there's a lot of people at this show. I mean, there's there's some people whose names are recognizable to people. There's definitely some people who are in the art community who do, who do stuff. And if you show up, you're going you're gonna to see them. And I'm not going to name names because I don't want to put privileged people above mm-hmm. others. But there, there's obviously some people who, who sell stuff uh, at, at galleries and do quite a lot of work. Um, you know, Lynn and, Lynn and Tom obviously come to mind on that level. But I, there's a lot of first-time artists and there's a lot of people, um, you know, that are, are doing stuff and just – Kind of, they're they're hobbyists and they're amateurs and they're doing it for fun, uh, not a career artist. And and a lot of them came by last night and we're we're hanging stuff. I mean, the show right now is still being hung. We can see it on our, our studio B window here, but it's being hung in kind of a salon style and, and it's it's kind of chaotic and everything's kind of together. Um, but it's an interesting thing because when everybody was lined up, I mean, we had how many people do you think? Showed up was it a hundred people that that dropped stuff off, Mike? Probably somewhere sixty yeah. to hundred folks. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was interesting because there was a line almost out the door last night with people dropping mm-hmm. stuff off. So, and, and it's a lot of people that you don't necessarily. Uh, some people from the neighborhood, some people that came from from far away, um, but it's it's a lot of people that you don't necessarily regularly see in art galleries. And there's a lot of uh, pictures that um, probably you, you wouldn't see just because they're not as you as Mike pointed out, kind of privileged to be in in the art world, which is interesting. Um, I think this is kind of the show that when I'm looking at it, it's very um, – a lot of this stuff is very heartfelt because it's stuff that people really care about and they're doing it for themselves. They're not necessarily doing it for anybody else. Yeah. Well, some folks call me Mr. Encourageable because what I do is, like I said, we have a lot of first-time folks that really do a lot of art or maybe they're just weekend artists or maybe they're skitting their feet or feet wet with paint. I don't know. But anyway, sometimes when they – get cedar art and people encourage them, they might continue to do it. And and art is a pretty cool thing. Todd Carter spoke to the members of Icon Cult about songwriting and production ahead of their newest album release, Warnings. Icon Cult discussed how they create their dance-friendly music, the difference between working in the studio and playing live, and whether or not they let their lead singer play tambourine. Bel Air Presents airs every Tuesday at 6 p.m. We are back with Icon Cult on Lumpen Radio trying to get enough headphones for everybody to be able to talk at the same time. And now we do. We do. Good job, Fred. There's 400 of us. <laughs> Lots of talk. In this little room. All right. So uh, you guys are playing next week at the Empty Bottle, giving away free tickets, just waiting for people to come down and pound on the door. Any minute now. Do you want to go around and introduce yourselves and say what you play in the band? We can go clockwise, starting with Fred. Okay. Hi. I'm Fred. I play bass. I'm Wayne. I play guitar. I'm Arif. I play drums. I'm Cecily, the singer, and I play the cowbell. Ooh. <laughs> in absentia is Sheba, who is our keyboardist. And, and uh, uh, spirit animal of the band. <laughs> does anybody else sing in addition? Sheba does a little singing. Yeah. She does? Mm-hmm. Okay. And any other uh, multi-instruments going on? Do you guys switch it up, or do you always sw- stay on guitar, Wayne? I stay on guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been mixing our music. We have a new release out called Warnings mm-hmm. that you just played that song from. Where can people get get that? Is that on Bandcamp? Is that right, Fred? Yes, it is. Yeah, Bandcamp. What is it? Iconcult.bandcamp.com. That's easy. Yeah. Do you guys do a, a pay what you pay, or do you, or is do you have a set price, or you give everything away, or what do you do? It's a uh, Pay what you feel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, feel like paying a bunch. So, <laughs> or millionaires. Yes. <laughs> right from this, from just Bandcamp. Yes, Bandcamp millionaires. Gotcha. How long has this band been together in, in this form? Arif's going to answer that. <laughs> uh, quite a while. I I think eight years, nine nine years. Wow. I uh, measure it on the birth of my third child. Right. And she's eight. Mm. So it was before that. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's been going a while, uh, and while our first album came out only last year, it seems like it'll be sooner than that for the next one because we have nearly a, a new album's worth written. And oh, really? Most of which we'll be playing uh, next Wednesday at the show at the Empty Bottle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this a concept record? 
Um, ooh, that's a good question. Sess? Uh, I'm going to say no. That's Do you play no. the songs in different orders? This in is a different a, the order? debut of a lot of our songs. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, or several of the songs. Yeah. Cool. So, new. Freshness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of uh, background vocal harmonies from the guys on this? Tons. Zero. Way more than before. <laughs> but a little from Sheba. Yeah? Yeah. Any tambourine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah? Huh. All right. Oh, yeah. Cool. We actually we need a new tambourine. We lost our favorite one, so if, if we could just get like you yeah, if, if you want to come pick up the tickets and bring a tambourine, we will. So we need be in to business. sell some Bandcamp records tonight. Yes. To buy that. I just want to add the tambourine if, fund. If that tambourine is missing, I'm very upset. It's my favorite. I've had it for twenty yeah. seven years. So if you took it, <laughs> please give it. Yeah, if you have it, give me. It's got to be somewhere. I don't know where it is. It's a black rhythm tech. It's like the best tambourine, but uh, whatever. How do you approach songwriting? Mm. Is it a it every, everybody us. bring brings parts and then you throw it together? It's, a, it's like a, a band, or does everybody have separate songs? Collaborative process. <laughs> <laughs> That's ultimately Emphasis on pain. Ultimately rewarding, but uh, you, you know. start with the the music first and then add the vocals, or usually always. Yeah, ninety percent of the time. That's mm-hmm. how it goes. Yep. Wayne a lot of times has a concept or seed uh, that starts maybe or and then other people too I mostly come on last mm-hmm. yeah. Wayne do you ever bring complete songs like it changes er, everything mm, earlier I did mm-hmm. but the new batch of stuff we've been writing by um, just improvising and then growing it from there yeah and sometimes during the like a uh, long session of improvising we'll end up with lots of parts and think it's all one song for a long time mm-hmm. and then it's not then some of it has to go away mm-hmm. and then so you cut out all the bad stuff like p-funk record and just keep yeah. the good stuff we just uh, we do a lot of editing mm-hmm. yeah a lot of shaping reshaping are these songs longer than the previous album no there's it's sure. we're going the other way really we're trying to go more concise and it just yeah the caressing part of the procedure makes them a little shorter i think mm-hmm now, what about um, overdubs and post-production? Do you, are you doing more on this record? You mean for the live show? No, for the new, <laughs> oh. for the new songs. Because for the live show, it's extensive overdubbing. <laughs> and outfits. Are you doing quadraphonic uh, tape loop live sound stuff? Yes, all yeah, of that. Gotcha. And then we change our sneakers and all that, everything. Lots of push-ups. We were talking about push-ups earlier. Oh, yeah. But, um, th- you know, on the record, there's, um, I'm going to say minimal overdubs. Mm-hmm. I do a little bit. Did you do anything, Fred? I didn't do any overdubs. Most of the drums and the bass are kept intact? Kept intact. Mm-hmm. I think the only is you and then Sheba, because we had a few other keyboardy things to use. My harmonies. When we recorded. Yeah. A little bit. So yeah. Some. I overdubbed a gong. Oh, that's right. Cool. Yeah, you that was a nearly point of, lost my hearing on that gong. Point mm-hmm. of contention with me, because I wanted to hit the gong. It was a five-foot gong. But he's the percussionist. Yeah, I know. Right. I didn't get to do it. And when you're in that loft, well, you're, you know, you're doing the recording, so you could have just taken the reins, right? Yeah, I could have. <laughs> but he had to record it, you know? I had to choose from the, the dozen gongs in Glenn Kochi's collection. Did yeah. you choose the right one? Arif, Arif did we, we'll uh, never know. an overdub of uh, playing congas on the record. Yes. And I had never heard him play congas until right there, and he did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this something you're going to do live? You're going to try to do live? Mm, or do extra percussion stuff? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Only, two, get only, no, only two arms. It, we keep it raw live. Get Sheba on the congas, then. <laughs> does she do, does she do, <laughs> do She's not the auxiliary. That would be funny. Do extra everything. Uh-huh. Trying to no, get that's, her there. That's Cecily. Cecily does all the she's extensive percussionist. percussionists. She played a djembe for like a show or two until we, but then we asked that she stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I say nothing. It is not a point of contention. No, it's just hand claps and cowbell. <laughs> when I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. No, man, the tambourine. No, I do tambourine. We cowbell? do a little uh, shaker. Shaker? Really? A lot of shaker. Yeah. Those are my two things. I say thanks to Arif every time he owns the instruments. I just borrow them <laughs> mm-hmm. and use them. But he lets me, and that's how I know I'm decent, because if I sucked, he would say, You haven't gotten um, the bill yet. Put that down? <laughs> are there any songs where you bring the lyrics first? Or you might even have there a, a melodic idea for the There was pretty much one music. song, and it is a, uh, it's Josefina, in which I think that was where I said, let's try this. Um, there may be a couple of other parts. You know, our songs have many par- parts to them, so maybe a couple other parts had an idea, maybe like 
Seiba. We have a newer one that's very reggae at the ending, and I think I, well, no, I laid that on top. So, no, mostly they lay it, and I come in later, but a couple times. Mm -hmm. So what can um, people expect to see? Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be good. I think we're... We'll see how that works out. Yeah, a lot of energy. I mean... Focus to new stuff. We're still figuring this is it out. Is your first song? In, I mean, your first show in a while. Yeah, it's our first show since last February. Where was yeah. that? Uh, that was at the California Clipper, as far as I recollect. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. You guys like playing there? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. the only time I'd played. It was lovely. It was, it nice. was great. It did, was Wayne, f- did Wayne also do sound at the same time? I don't not think so. No, no, it was a, isn't no. it man, not Wayne? It was unmanned, but it was the <laughs> oh, first really? time my parents yes. saw me play yes. in like twenty years. <laughs> Since uh, college. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's a pretty big chance that some of my relatives that are of my mother's generation will also be at the show, which they'll just... Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. At the empty bottle? I think so. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Yeah, so people can expect new music uh, and a rare sighting from the band Celebrations, who we're opening uh, for. What can you tell me about them? Uh, they're a Baltimore group, although some of them used to live here, right, guys? They were yeah. they were in a band called Jacks yeah. mm-hmm. in the 90s. Oh, yes. Ah. And, uh, I remember them. Yeah, they're a very, very cool, talented group of folks. Uh, I don't know. I haven't I haven't heard their new stuff, but uh I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. They're a great, great group. Well, I remember, Wayne, you know... Uh, I moved here the same time the Jacks did. You did? That old Odom era. Oh, really? Odom right? on Chicago Avenue? Yeah. Holy. You lived there, right? I lived there after them. They lived there when it was like 20 people and 10 dogs, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they moved like their farm from Ann Arbor to, into Chicago. Yeah. Right. I remember. I used mm. to spend some time there. Yeah, because it was still like remnants of the, of the Ukrainian Village Meeting Hall was still there. Like yeah. the china and the silverware and stuff like that. That's right. I, <laughs> I might have met you there, Wayne. I think I met you at Odom. For the first time? I feel like that might be true. Really? Yeah. I thought it was at my house. Anyway. <laughs> We're old. Ask us at the show. Leah Gibson and Craig Harshad discussed the Paul Gauguin Show at the Art Institute, a survey of the proto-modernist work that aimed to take the artists out of the world of stereotype. Divisive, or divisive, Lumpen Radio's long-form arts discussion program airs every third Wednesday of the month at 6 p.m. And thanks for listening to Divisive. I'm Leah Gibson and Craig Harshaw and Leanne Norman, and we've been talking about um, the recently closed exhibition at the Art Institute, Gauguin, Artists as Alchemist. And we were just having a conversation about the different narratives that have um, come with our understanding of who Paul Gauguin was and, and what it means to look at this work in retrospect uh, as it has to do with the life that Gauguin led as well as the, the communities of people who have kind of taken the time to really critique and unpack uh, the meaning surrounding these works. Um, so I just want to put this back out for all of us to just talk about our experience of the work itself um, and just being in the museum. Any thoughts that you have, Leanne, about just seeing the work and what what's happening around this work? Yeah, I think... Um we, we spoke about this very briefly, and I think my um, experience is probably very different than um, you and Craig. I, I ended up going during the member preview, so was, I think it was very different than sort of the general audience that might encounter the, the work as they're, you know, either going to the museum specifically for this exhibition or just kind of walking around and being able to stumble upon that because, oh, this seemingly really important big exhibition is here. Um, so, you know, I think most of the people that were with me looking, um, you know, were a little bit older, um, you know, mostly white. I think that I might have been the only um, black person, maybe even person of color, like just looking at the work at that moment. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make any 
promises, but, um, you know, just sort of looking around and, you know, at the people as I'm navigating through and um, looking at the work, um, you know, there, there was a lot of sameness and um, me, yeah. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, I had a similar experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I did too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, many, many people um, perhaps hadn't, um, you know, there's there was a, a an exhibition hall that had um, one of the walls sort of uh, mapped out uh, his travels. So, you know, like where he was born and where he lived in France, um, the different places that he visited, you know, throughout his travels in the country, um, you know, uh, Peru kind of marked out um, places in the South Pacific that he had visited later. And, you know, I think some of the people as they were looking at that were sort of familiar with like, you know, they had been to some of those places, um, knew what some of those things were like um, through travels or other sort of encounters that they had had to be be able to physically be there. Um, You know, so I think for them, it might have uh, put some of the the objects um, that were kind of juxtaposed next to his artworks as reference um, in a different kind of light um, than, you know, if they had just sort of seen them in, you know, um, a gallery focused on the art of Peru, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the print galleries where there was a, you know, selection of um, Japanese woodblock prints or something. Um, so I think, you know, people that I had saw the exhibition with uh, maybe had a little bit more um, background and kind of the... Um, cultural context of the artist um, than perhaps the general stumble upon her visitor to the museum. Right. And I think that um, my experience like yours, although I was kind of with a huge group of people who were uh, looking at the work, we were on the end coming in on the end of the show also at the end of the day um so you know the work closed i think on september 10th um so we were that last group of people who were trying to see the show and um i definitely felt that um difference in the space uh particularly as a black woman in this museum where there were um, quite a few uh, white folks walking around looking at the work and we were all kind of bustling to get through this huge exhibition and as the museum is closing. Um, and one of the things I experienced while I was there, um, the uh, security guards at the time uh, were all black and uh, they were asking you know, folks, the museum's closing in five minutes. At this point, the museum was pretty much closed, right? But gently, the museum's closing in five minutes, everyone. Um, you know, please start making your way through the museum and go home, <laughs> right? Really politely. And, um, you know, it, at this point, you know, the time that the museum is closed has gone by, and one of the security personnel says, okay, everyone, really assertively, the museum is now closed. Please make your way to the exit or something along those lines. And a white woman turns around and says to her friend, but loud enough for the security person to hear, you know, calm down, Um, you know, in this calm down or chill out or something like that, which I thought was, you know, in the context of the work that we were looking at um, and, and just kind of, this moment or you know expression of entitlement to this work of significance or something was how I felt that encounter was sort of my you know this work is really more important than you being able to leave work on time Mm. (laughs) right like because there's there are things that you probably have to do when all the people are out of the museum um so for me that was just a part of being in the museum as an institution in space that is is sharing this cultural work and then we're interacting with that and so all of those interactions I think are important to the conversation as well like how people see themselves in relationship to the work I should be viewing this work and I should not be rushed in my view of this work Um, and I shouldn't think about 
you know, the dynamics that are that are being perpetuated here. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump throws paper towels in Puerto Rico while claiming his budget is busted, all while pursuing tax breaks for the ultra-wealthy. Protests continue on NFL sidelines. Rex Tillerson calls his boss a moron. And is Jared Kushner a woman? He's registered to vote as one. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 252, September 28th. Trump and Republican leaders propose slashing tax rates, claiming it will help the middle class. But independent analysts say most of the tax breaks benefit the ultra-wealthy and will explode the deficit. The New York Times is also reporting it would personally save the president nearly $1 billion. It is uncertain if the plan can pass. Republicans are lining up to attempt to rewrite the code without Democratic votes. And Roy Moore, the ousted former Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, overcame efforts by Republicans and beat Senator Luther Strange soundly in a special primary runoff. That outcome dealt a humbling blow to Trump and other party leaders days after the president pleaded with voters in the state to back Strange. Moore's victory demonstrated in stark terms the limits of Trump's clout. Moore is also a headache for the Republicans as he has made a number of bigoted and homophobic statements. And the acting head of the DEA will resign after losing confidence in Trump's respect for the law. Last month, Chuck Rosenberg sent an agency-wide memo rebuking Trump's suggestion that police were being too nice to suspects and shouldn't shield their heads from hitting the roof of the police car during arrests. Rosenberg is resigning at the end of the week. And three Americans with Russian business connections contributed almost $2 million to funds controlled by Trump. All three men are associated with Viktor Veskelberg, one of the richest men in Russia, who holds frequent meetings with Putin. Donations began flowing to the Republicans just as Trump was securing the nomination and culminated in two large gifts, totaling $1.25 million to Trump's inaugural fund. Unless the contributions were directed by a foreigner, they would be legal donations. And Trump plans to cap refugee admissions at 45,000 over the next year, setting a historically low limit on the number of people who can resettle in the United States after fleeing persecution in their own countries. That limit is the lowest any White House has sought since 1980. The ceiling, in fact, has never slipped lower than 67,000 people, the number Ronald Reagan set in 1986. Some of Trump's advisors wanted that number to be pegged even lower at just 15,000 people. Day 253, September 29th. Tom Price resigned as Trump's Health and Human Services Secretary after racking up at least $400,000 in private charter flights. In an effort to satisfy Trump, Price offered to reimburse the government just $51,000. Price's resignation came hours after Trump's told reporters he considered Price a fine man, but that he, quote, didn't like the optics. He would make a decision about Price's future by the end of the day. Politico then reported that Price had used a military aircraft to travel to Africa, Europe, and Asia earlier this year at a cost of more than $500,000. To taxpayers, the overseas trips bring the total cost of prices travels to more than $1 million since May. Day 254, September 30th. The Senate Budget Committee on Friday formally unveiled a 2018 budget blueprint that would shield a tax cut of as much as $1.5 trillion from a Democratic filibuster. And it could pave the way to opening the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska to oil drilling. The budget contains massive breaks for the ultra-wealthy and would actually raise rates on the middle class. Bernie Sanders, the Independent of Vermont and the Budget Committee's ranking member, denounced the blueprint as, quote, one of the most destructive budgets in modern American history. And Twitter has shut down 201 accounts tied to the same Russian operatives who posted thousands of political ads on Facebook. Twitter made the announcement in a blog post. The company also found that three accounts from the news site RT, which Twitter has linked to the Kremlin, spent nearly a quarter million dollars in ads on Twitter's platform in 2016. And Congress let funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program to expire, which provides low-cost health insurance to 9 million American children. States still have some chip money available, but several are expected to drain their funding by the end of the year. Trump, meanwhile, proclaimed today as Child Health Day, and that he's committed to, quote, protecting and promoting the health and well-being of our nation's young people. Trump then accused the San Juan mayor in Puerto Rico of, quote, poor leadership and suggested that the island's residents are not doing enough to help themselves. Such poor leadership ability by the mayor of San Juan and others in Puerto Rico who are not able to get their workers to help. Trump tweeted this from his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, quote, they want everything to be done for them when it should be a community effort. Trump then dedicated a golf trophy to the people of Puerto Rico. And the acting Homeland Security Secretary called Puerto Rico's recovery, quote, really a good news story. San Juan Mayor Carmen Yulín Cruz shot back, damn it, this is not a good news story, this is a people are dying story. 
Trump placed some blame on Puerto Rico for its situation, tweeting that the U.S. territory had, quote, broken infrastructure and massive debt. He also tweeted that, quote, big decisions will have to be made as to the cost of its rebuilding. And the State Department ordered non-essential diplomats and families out of Cuba after several mysterious sonic attacks. At least 21 U.S. diplomats and family members have been affected, causing an array of issues from hearing loss to dizziness to concussion. Day 255, October 1st. Protests continued against Trump across the NFL. The Ravens and the Steelers both knelt before the anthem in a coordinated gesture leading to boos from the crowd. Raiders running back Marshawn Lynch appeared in a shirt that said, quote, everybody versus Trump, and many players raised their fists during the national anthem. And Rex Tillerson said the United States is in direct communication with North Korea about its nuclear program, even after Trump tweeted that, quote, talking is not the answer and vowed to totally destroy the country. We are probing, so stay tuned, the Secretary of State said. We can talk to them. We do talk to them directly through our own channels, adding that the United States has a couple, three channels open to Pyongyang. Hours later, Trump undercut Tillerson calling his effort to open lines of communication with North Korea a waste of time and seeming to rule out a diplomatic resolution to the nuclear-edged confrontation with Pyongyang. Tillerson said he was reaching out to Pyongyang. Mr. Trump belittled the idea and left the impression he was focused mainly on military options. And Trump's associates had two more previously undisclosed contacts with Russia during the 2016 campaign. Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, was invited to a conference in Russia that would be attended by Putin. And Cohen also received a second proposal for a Trump-branded Moscow project during the campaign. Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, low-level foreign policy advisors, now Cohen were all contacted by Russians with interest in business and politics in the weeks before or after Trump accepted the nomination. Day 256, October 2nd. 59 people have been killed and more than 527 wounded in one of the worst mass shootings in American history. A gunman firing from a hotel window rained a 10-minute rapid-fire barrage on a huge outdoor concert festival on Sunday night in Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino. ISIS has claimed the gunman was a soldier of theirs. Law enforcement so far denies that claim, but has not identified a motive. The gunman, identified as 64-year-old Steve Paddock, killed himself. 23 guns were found in the hotel room, some of them modified to become fully automatic weapons. There have been no indications of any problems with Paddock, and relatives and friends of the man say they are baffled. Trump called for unity in the wake of what he termed pure evil in a somber address to the nation. Top Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, who represents Sandy Hook in Connecticut, released a blunt statement that said, quote, it's time for Congress to get off its ass and do something. To my colleagues, your cowardice to act cannot be whitewashed by thoughts and prayers. None of this ends unless we do something to stop it. Day 257, October 3rd. Trump visited Puerto Rico today, telling people on the island to be, quote, very proud that more didn't die in a, quote, real catastrophe like Katrina. Trump also boasted about what a great job we've done and claimed local officials in Puerto Rico, quote, have to give us more help in responding to the destruction caused by Hurricane Maria. In fact, FEMA has not authorized every disaster response tool it has at its disposal, despite just 5% of Puerto Rico's electrical grid functioning, 17% of its cell phone towers working, and more than half the residents still without running water. Trump was later filmed throwing rolls of paper towels out to a local crowd. And Robert Mueller's top legal counsel is researching limits on preemptive presidential pardons. Michael Dreben has been researching past pardons to determine if any limits exist as Trump's current and former advisors come under special counsel scrutiny. Trump has tweeted that, quote, all agree the U.S. president has the complete power to pardon. However, pardon of a president's campaign workers, family members, and himself are uncharted legal territory. And the Justice Department overruled memos that concluded presidents cannot appoint their relatives to the White House staff or to presidential commissions. The request to rule the early opinions erroneous or obsolete came from the incoming Trump administration in January, which cleared the way for Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump to take up roles in the White House. Appointments of family members have been illegal under an anti-nepotism law passed in 1967. Day 258, October 4th. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said he had never considered resigning despite what associates have described as a deep frustration. He did not deny a report today that he had grown so disenchanted with Trump that he referred to him as a moron. Tillerson summoned reporters abruptly to his office to dispute a report by NBC that he had been prepared to step down over the summer until Vice President Mike Pence counseled him. He did not deny, however, that he had belittled Trump. Tillerson said, quote, I'm not going to deal with petty stuff like that. Trump said in Las Vegas that he'll be, quote, talking about gun laws as time goes by. Steve Bannon told Politico that, quote, will be the end of everything if Trump supports gun control legislation. Roger Stone told The Washington Post in the wake of those comments, quote, the base would go insane and Trump knows it. 
and Pence's chief of staff called for wealthy donors to purge Republican lawmakers who don't support Trump's agenda. Nick Ayers urged donors to form a coalition to take on leadership and members who don't back the president, saying, quote, we can purge the handful of people who continue to work to defeat Trump. The White House and Pence both declined to comment. Russian operatives used Facebook's retargeting tool to target specific ads and messages to voters who had visited misleading websites and social media pages designed to mimic those created by true political activists. By using Facebook's custom audiences tool, Russian-linked ad buyers were able to spend $100,000 or more than 3,000 ads that were seen by roughly 10 million users. 44% of those ads were seen before the November 8th election last year. And the New York Times reports that Scott Pruitt has held almost daily meetings with top corporate executives and the lobbyists from all the sectors that he regulates. The EPA chief has held no meetings with environmental groups or consumer or public health advocates. In a statement, the EPA claimed that Obama had ignored lobbyists and top corporate executives. And according to new polls, an overwhelming number of Americans, 83%, now support a legal path for illegal immigrants to become permanent citizens. Just 14% support mass deportation. Also, just 39% of Americans now approve of Trump's performance. Trump remains the least popular president on record since polling started. These are the Trump Diaries. In between radio stations spoke to Suzanne Shelton, one of the pioneers of the Chicago club scene. Shelton spoke about the early influence of gay clubs on disco nightlife, the liberation of the underground, and growing up weird. IRS, with Glenn Russell and DJ Michael, airs every second and fourth Wednesday from 7 to 10 p.m. All right, well, we have a special guest here tonight, um, and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce her. Um, When Michael and I first talked about our format here at the show, we discussed having guests, and the very first person Michael said to me that he was thinking about us having was Suzanne Shelton, and uh, I was really pleased and quite surprised that Michael uh, understood her importance and contribution to the music scene in Chicago as well as Chicago pop culture. Chicago has had many scenes based around different types of music, and in the late 70s, the new wave scene kind of exploded in New York, and then punk trickled over from the UK and offered a different kind of musical option to those few who could find it. And clubs emerged playing the music that this kind of music through bands and through DJs. New York had Danceteria, CBGB's Max's Kansas City, the Peppermint Lounge, and the Mud Club, Limelight, and a few other short-lived spots. And Chicago had O'Banion's Exit 950, the Smart Bar, and a quite unique little gem of a club called Neo. It lasted 36 years, outliving any other new wave club in the U.S., possibly the world. Everyone went there at least once. Tonight I have the privilege of discussing that wonderful era with the woman who founded Neo and gave people like me a place to belong and spin at. Mm. Welcome to In Between Radio Stations, Suzanne Shelton. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> so, Suzanne, can you tell us and the listeners when or what you have been listen what you've been listening to when you were growing up? Well, you know, it's a, it was funny. I um was one of those kids who just always responded to music. And pretty early on, I I was really opinionated about it. When I was, I think it was my seventh or eighth birthday, which was like, you know, 1822 or something, I got a a little transistor radio for my birthday. And and that was, you know, high technology in those days. And I listened to WLS, or maybe it was WCFL, I can't remember, like all night under my pillow. I mean, I mean, it was like, till it got light out, right? And this is in March, so it's not like I didn't have to go to school. And, um, you know, then I think I bought my first record like the week, a week later or something. And for the next 20 years, never had a dime because everything I had, I spent on records. I had, in high school, I had... Um, two part-time jobs in addition to full-time school so that I could buy records. One of them was at a record store, so I got a discount. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've always been very passionate about music, but I always, I never liked what everybody else liked. I don't know why. I've always just been kind of an oddball, proud of it. And, um, (laughs) you know, to the point where when the New York Dolls album first came out, and I don't know if you know what the cover looks like, but it's men in drag, right? And that was like before you'd ever seen anybody in drag, unless you were fortunate enough to run in certain circles. But 
Somebody gave it to my father as a joke for his birthday. Now my father, I mean, this was in Hinsdale, right? So my, and my father was this like successful corporate guy. And so it was this joke gift for my father. And um, he, you know, from a, a colleague, I think, and a colleague who's friend. And he unwrapped it and he looked at it and he turned around and he handed it to me and he said, Susie, I think you'll like this. You know, and it was because I already had a reputation as being kind of an odd duck. And I still have that album. And it was one of the albums we opened Neo with. Wow. And then... Um, That's a great album. Uh, oh, yeah. Every song on there is fantastic. Wow. It really is. Well, and David Johansson. I mean, his solo stuff, I don't think is that interesting to listen to, but he's the most charismatic front man I've ever seen in my life. You cannot take your eyes off of him. Hmm. Extraordinary. Um, so... I, I, I never really liked what everybody else was listening to. And in high school, I was so frustrated by what I thought was really overproduced crap. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, now that's classic rock. <laughs> um, and I was always, I always leaned towards, you know, I wanted something with more edge, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, then uh, I, I did radio in high school and college. And um, then when I ran Screaming from college, I'm sorry, dropped out. I was working as a disco DJ because, you know, that's the kind of job you could get and that's what I knew how to do. I hated the music, but, you know, I was making people dance and I liked it. But that was around the time Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. And I felt, my sister and I were talking about it the other day, how Rocky Horror was like the gateway drug music. You know, because it was like... Okay. That movie was a gateway into many things. Well, you know, it's like if this exists in the world, there's all kinds of other stuff. The possibilities are endless. And, you know, then we stumbled on O'Banions. Um, I was away at college when La Mer was open, so I missed that, but kind of stumbled on O'Banions and, like, the world shifted on its axis and it was never the same. And to this day, there are certain songs that I know, for, the, for, uh, for a fact, the first time I heard them was on that dance floor at O'Banions. Wow. And um, that stuff just stayed with me. Did I answer your question? I know I tangent no, you a lot. No, you absolutely answered that question. Um, so, like... From what you've just said, what made you want to become a DJ? Well, I didn't really want to become a DJ. I'd done radio in high school and college, and it was something I could do as a job summers between college years and after I dropped out of college that did not involve waitressing. Ah, okay. Yeah, just one of those things. <clears throat> and so was it, was it during that time when you first heard about punk and new wave? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I, I was predisposed towards it, and I liked music with a harder edge. But then, O'Banion's was um, a place that was playing punk music. Okay. And it was a dark, ratty, dingy bar at the corner of Clark and Erie, and wow. um, I was you know I loved it. I mean, it was that music just changed my life, changed me. Mm. Interesting. I mean, it's stuff you didn't hear anywhere else. Yeah. Because I guess the world was just listening to at that time was just... Disco. Disco. Ario Speedwagon. The D word. Frampton Comes Alive. Right. On the radio. Mm. <coughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you couldn't find... There was no rock club you could go to to dance. I mean, that was the thing. If you wanted to go out dancing, it was disco. That was it. And I mean, the lack of ability to get information about new wave punk was, I mean, it was just impossible to find out anything about it. It was never written in magazines. It was, you know, it was only talked about from a spectacle standpoint of some crazy, you know, Sid Vicious killed his girlfriend or something like that. And that's mm. as part of this horrible thing called punk rock. And you be careful because that's going to like, you know, right. do something terrible to you. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. There really was no place to find out. So there was, so that's why, uh, you know, which we'll talk about later, but it was a, a, very, a big attraction to Suzanne when I did get to know her is I just, all of that early stuff, I had no visibility to. And I was just stumbling on whatever I could find, looking at the cover, going, I'm thinking I'm going to like this. I'm pretty sure. You know, not positive. And I had two other friends that were interested in that as well. So between the three of us, we we covered a lot of ground and kind of got to find, you know, some groups that way. Sure. Wow. Well, you really had to have friends introduce you to stuff. I mean, that's how you found out about this stuff. Mm. So with... Um can you help paint a picture for our listeners of what the rest of the world was receiving musically at that time in the late 70s? 
Well, um, the stuff that was on the radio was like Frampton Comes Alive and Fleetwood Mac and that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, all the, the dance clubs were playing You Can Ring My Bell and um, Bad Girls and um, Glenn, help me out with some other disco songs. I know you had a refresher recently. <laughs> yes, I did. Oh, there's, well, I mean, the one that only, okay, so a real quick side story is I had a, a, a teacher in high school who came to me with the idea of disco that he had discovered and he had all these records and one of the ones that really stuck with me that he played for me was Donna Summer I Feel Love which was produced by George Jonah Roder and it had just an incredible electronic beat and it was great but there are some that are not so great that are very popular like Alicia Bridges um, like Fly Robin Fly a lot of the ones that were on the radio were Mm. Not such great examples of what was really out there. Um, and I think, too, when you went to a disco, you didn't necessarily know they were going to play songs that you actually were aware of. You just kind of went with the sound, oh, this is good disco, and occasionally one would pop on that you'd know. Well, it was like EDM. There were, there's a big... True. My son and I were true. actually talking That's about really this true. last night. It's very similar to EDM, and then it's thunka, 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 you know? Um, and that's I mean, why that's how I experienced some of those uh, songs that were new versions, like disco versions of popular songs, became very important because people could latch on to something. Oh, I know this. This is a disco version of some TV theme song, right? Exactly. I mean, or yeah. you know, there are these terrible things called Stars on Forty Five that had like a clap track. Da da da. They would do Beatles songs, or you know, then there was all the oh hooked on classics, hooked on country, hooked on I don't know whatever else. But there were a bunch of records like that. And that's what people would hear when they went, you know, to a discotheque. Wow. So. Hmm. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Except actually, so, so some of the gay clubs were different. There was a lot more energy to it. There was some edge to it. Um, <clears throat> they didn't play a lot of the really silly same stuff over and over again. I mean, those those were, were more interesting. Okay. But, you know, like Faces, and I mean, well, I sh- I'm lying. I never went to Faces. But um, <laughs> what I would imagine they were playing at Faces, um, which was the big popular club until Neo took over. Um, but I mean, it was, it was, it was not very interesting. And, and at the same time, culturally, I think a lot people, a lot of people, if you're not as old as me, you don't understand what it was like culturally. I mean, girls could dance with girls or a girl could dance with a guy. Two guys couldn't dance together unless it was at a, da- a gay club. And you certainly couldn't dance by yourself. Huh. And a lot of times it was prescribed dance steps. You couldn't just throw yourself wildly around the dance floor. So that's one of the things that was so refreshing about this shift in music. I mean, that's a that song, Dancing by Myself by Billy Idol. Yeah. Um, people don't understand that that was actually a celebration of the freedom to dance by yourself because you never got to do that before, except maybe in your living room. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.